Thank you. Thank you for being here. Many of you have heard me before talk about college student mental health and what we can do to help young people, and I'm glad young people are in the audience. This does apply to you for sure, but maybe, just maybe, the rest of us have a few challenges as well. And I'm not going to reiterate um, some of the stats I've shown before about how anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues are rapidly escalating among young people. But here's the reminder, they are not the only ones. Um, it's happening for us too. So it is important that we look at what we have to do to be resilient. Maybe, just maybe, it doesn't have to be like this. We don't just have to have more and more and more anxiety in our life and feel stressed out and rushed and depressed <coughs> and emotionally exhausted. Maybe just maybe there's another way. So let's talk about a few points here. First, how would you define resilience? If I say, wow, this is what it takes to have resilience in your life. Oh boy, that person's so resilient. I like her resilience. What, what, are you, what are you thinking of? How would you define that term? The ability to bounce back. The ability to bounce back. Former student. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great answer. Resilience is actually a term that comes from the materials field. Rubber is rated. How resilient is it? How quickly will it stretch back? It will be stretched, yes, but how quickly will it bounce back? How about you? Are you stretched every now and then? And how fast do you bounce back? And people that you minister to, and people that you're helping find their way, will they bounce back? That's what resilience is. So when do you need to bounce back? Think of your own life in recent days or people that you love. What would be some examples of huge issues that you have to bounce back from? Divorce. Divorce. Cancer. Death. Cancer. Death. Death of a loved one. Yeah, losing a job. Absolutely. Natural disaster. We've had one here, right? Recently, we had fires, love, seats, lost at home, faculty staff. Criticism as you preach a sermon. Criticism, yeah. I might bump that down just a little bit, but it might feel huge sometimes, right? So there are those huge things, and there are major things. Relationships not going well, you're really concerned about them. There are things that also that happen day to day. There's stressors in life. What's examples of that? Little things you have to bounce back from. Traffic, goodness. Airplane tickets canceled. Yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> flights canceled. Travel in general can be complicated. There's a lot of stuff. Some of it's little, some of it's bigger, some of it's huge. But what's interesting is sometimes people have those same experiences. And sure, they're distraught or upset or anxious or whatever for a season, but they bounce back more quickly where others, it seems to take a long time or it almost seems like they never bounce back. In the early research in this area, they focus more on traits. So, okay, good for you. You're a resilient person. Sorry for you. <laughs> You're not, okay? Like it's a permanent um, state of events. Like if that's who you are. You're a resilient person or not. Fortunately, there's been a shift more recently to look at 
it more in terms of skills and practices. Things that you can do, habits that you can develop. Now I want to say in advance, a lot of this is not rocket science. I'm going to give you some strategies and some things to think about, and you're like, yeah, 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 my mom told me that long time ago. But on those, I would say, you know it, but are you doing it, right? We can know that's a great idea, but the question is, are we doing it? So it's a good reminder, maybe. And then I'll give you a few ideas, maybe, that are new to you. You have, hopefully, a self-evaluation um, sheet that as we're going, and we'll have a moment for pause here and there to check yourself. Again, not necessarily do you know it, but are you actually doing it? A lot of this really helps develop a couple of skills, and I think of as like psychological muscles that are super important to navigate life. One is the muscle of emotional regulation. Think about it. If life is hard, of course, I'm going to have those moments where I'm angry, where I'm anxious, where I'm sad, where I'm whatever. But do I know how to regulate it? It's okay that it goes up for a bit, but can it come back down? And so think about that as like having a bag of tricks or some tools in the toolbox that help you to bring it back down. And then the second one perhaps is a little harder, and that's called distress tolerance. And that one is facing the reality that sometimes you can do all the things. You can pray, you can jog, you can write, you can talk to a friend, you can do whatever. But if you've lost a loved one, for example, it's just gonna hurt for a while. So part of it is tolerating distress. And I've often talked to the students about nobody ever died from emotional distress, but many have died learning from it. So part of it is, do what you can to regulate, but then learn to, to sit with it. Sometimes you just have to sit with it. So a lot of these uh, that I'll talk about, I think, help with both of these aspects, both the emotional regulation and the distress tolerance. So we'll talk in four main areas, and of course each could be a whole long discussion, but I'll try to get a number of points for us to think about. The first is perhaps the most basic and the easiest to forget about, though. It's the physical dimension. If I say being a good steward of your body, taking care of your body, is one of the most important predictors of resilience, what comes to mind? What does it mean to be a good steward of your body or to attend to the physical aspect of resilience? Sleep, rest, and like I said, huge. Sleep is one. Eating well, exercise. and exercise. You guys are right through. See, I told you you already knew this stuff. I love this passage when I think about the physical dimension. So here's this great prophet of God, right? Elijah is in a crisis. He's running for his life. He's running from his enemy. He's running from his life. And he comes to a broom tree, sits down under it, and prays that he might die. Lord, take my life. I know better than my ancestors. We would call that in the psychological world passive suicidality. Right? He's not saying he's going to kill himself, but he wishes he would die at that moment. And he lays down under the tree and falls asleep. This is an important person of God. He's got work to do in the kingdom. God sends an angel to this man in distress. 
what would you think? And it takes probably a really important message that the angel would have to say. Let's see. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. <laughs> he looks around, there's some bread and a jar of water. He eats and drinks and lays down again. And you think, okay, God said the angel a second time. This time, it's going to be the big news. Look what, it, what the angel says again. Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and <laughs> ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights and reached Horeb in the mountain of God. So I'm not saying there's not divine intervention there, too. And it is a reminder of how sometimes the very basics make a difference. The very basics make a huge difference. Elijah was went from suicidal to strengthened and ready to travel just by some good sleep, some eating, and drinking some water. So if we're struggling, we want to check in with ourselves. Or if you're helping somebody, you want to help them think about these dimensions. Sleep. Depending on age, you need somewhere between seven and a half and nine hours of sleep on average. And pretty consistently, not just on average, doing one this night and 15 tomorrow and one, that's not what I'm talking about. Pretty consistent around that much sleep. How many of you got that last night? Congratulations to both of you. <laughs> you make my point. How many of you generally get something in that ballpark? Okay, congratulations to a third of you. This is huge. It's huge. Getting enough sleep is huge for mental health. It's huge for resilience. And yet we as a society, um, are often sleep deprived. Now, I'll talk to the students about this. They'll say, oh, but you don't understand. I'm so busy. I'm so very busy. I don't possibly have time to sleep. And I ask them three questions, basically. You have time to get sick because it's just a biological fact. When the flu comes through, as it always does, who's the most vulnerable to get it? Those who are sleep Who's cold is going to turn into a sinus infection, is going to turn into the, you know, the wrong thing. You were already stressed, and now you've missed extra <laughs> class because you got the flu or sick or whatever. Okay. And of course, we can't guarantee we can do everything perfectly and still get sick. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But in general, are you gonna, if you want to protect your health physically, you want to get enough sleep. Do you have time for drama in your life? Guess what? Our frustration tolerance is a little bit lower when we're tired. You know that feeling. People are, get on your nerves more. You have more conflict. You're less patient with people. And so you have more, more drama. You don't have time for that. Pay attention. And then thirdly, you have time to waste on trying to concentrate on your studies or your work, etc. Most of us know that feeling when we're sleep deprived and we read this paragraph and over and over and over again. What did it say? Like, I can't quite get it. Or numbers that just aren't making sense to you right now, but if you had a good night's sleep, they would. So if you say you don't have time to sleep, you can help people think like this. I would say you don't have time not to sleep because you're so much more likely to get sick, have relational drama, and to um, waste time on tasks. So sleep is an important one. Now, some people, of course, will say that they would like to sleep. Yeah, I get it. I want to, but I can't. And I don't want to minimize that at all. For some people, that's a, a very challenging um, 
aspect of their lives. Uh, there are a few, a few tips I'll share here, but sometimes people need to see a doctor as well. Sometimes it's a bit more complicated. But one that's a really common problem, a lot of us get on our screens right before we go to bed, and that's been shown to not be effective in sleep. So you want to give yourself some time away. So kind of wind down. Don't use your computer or your phone right before, and certainly don't sleep with it under your pillow. Um, exercise is great for sleep, but not right before you go to bed. Um, having a cool, dark room, if you can control your environment, avoiding heavy food, even caffeine and alcohol can make a difference. Caffeine, people probably think about it. People have different levels of tolerance. Some people need to not do any caffeine. Some people can do it till noon. Some people can do it after dinner. But notice what works for you. Alcohol can be a bit deceitful. Even a glass of wine, some people will say, oh yeah, that can be really helpful. It helps me get to sleep. But for some people, that's true. But then the second it wears off, they wake up. So just notice that, that's, that's a struggle for you. And then the last one I'll mention is this one that's kind of paradoxical, is don't fight sleep. So get up if you're not sleeping. And here's why. You know the feeling, probably, most of us have had this at least sometime. You're in bed, you want to go to sleep, and you can't. You are so frustrated and so worried about it. Oh man, I need a good night's sleep for tomorrow. I have a lot going on. Oh my gosh, it's midnight. I can't believe I went to bed at 10. I wasted two hours. If I don't sleep by one, it's going to be more. Oh, it's 1 30. Oh no, it's two, right? It turns out that doesn't work because <laughs> anxiety continues to interrupt your ability to settle and get to sleep. You get upset about not sleeping. You, and if you do that over time, you get your, your bed even associated with not sleeping. So maybe you struggle with insomnia from time to time. It can be a vicious cycle because then even thinking about going to bed, you're like, oh man, I hope this isn't one of those nights and all that. And so what you want to do is the exact opposite. You want to speak to yourself more gently and you want to get out of bed. So give it about a half hour for most people. Some people might need to stay an hour. But then say, hmm, I guess I'm not ready to sleep tonight. And so then you get up and do something. Do something relaxing. Don't do your taxes. Don't <laughs> sort your sock drawer or whatever. Do something really chill. And then try again. But it's the opposite, right? Instead of saying, oh, no, oh, no. It's like, oh, okay. And then just relax and try it again. So those are some on the sleep front. Exercise was mentioned. So true. So important for mental health for a lot of reasons. It's a great stress relief, of course. We feel better because we're being disciplined and have a sense of self-efficacy. Um, we typically look better, feel better, etc. It just feels good to feel fit. But don't underestimate, there's a real physiological thing going on too with neurochemical interactions that are happening uh, when you exercise. If you can get to aerobic levels about three times a week, that's huge for mental health. Or to say the opposite, being sedentary is typically not great for mental health. Exercise has been proven for some people to be as effective as medication, um, even for moderate levels of depression. So it's a grossly underestimated um, way to make a huge difference in resilience. So what helps you exercise? You might have heard this one. What exercise is best? The one you will do. So think about what works for you, what's practical, what's realistic, what you enjoy. 
And just a couple things that are good to keep in mind related to exercise, but really in most uh, healthy life skills or habits that you're trying to change. Know that there's often a sense of a downward spiral. And what I mean by that is you, if you're not in a great place emotionally, you don't feel like doing things that would be healthy for you, right? So think about it. You guys know this feeling, right? You're kind of in a funk. You're sad. You're tired. You've been stressed. Your alarm goes off. What do you want to do? Snooze, right? And you do it again and again. You feel worse. You do it again. And, and, and you know, for students, for example, they might uh, miss their morning class. They were already feeling bad. Now they feel worse. Their friends come to get to see them to say, hey, where were you in class? You want to go to lunch? They were feeling bad. They felt worse. Now they don't feel like going out with friends, so they feel worse, right? They can't go down, down, down. That's definitely true for exercise. Who of us, when we're feeling really kind of yucky or tired or, or depressed, feels like, I think I'll go for a run right now, right? But the idea of a downward spiral is that what you feel like doing is probably not helpful. And so you have to do what I call mind over mood. There's an American Psychological Association published a book with that title. The book's fine. The title's great. Mind over mood, right? Sometimes you have to say logically, I don't feel like exercising, but I know I will feel better if I do. That's one. And then the other principle that's important, again, with exercise and others, is to avoid all or nothing thinking. So imagine my talking to somebody who says, oh no, I don't have time to exercise. And I, I said, well, tell me about that. You know, it's really important to mental health. Oh, well, you know, I would have to go from here all the way back up to my residence hall. I'd have to change clothes, go down, do 20 minutes of weights, 40 minutes of aerobics, go back up, shower, change again. That would take me two hours away from my service. So then what do they do? Sit on the couch and eat chips, right? <laughs> so the idea is there's lots of options in between. Sure, it's great. If you have two hours, spend two hours. But don't do nothing. If you have five minutes, take a quick stroll around here. If you have 20, take a couple of laps around your office building or whatever. The idea is do something. All or nothing thinking is not helpful. So the physical is really, really important. Healthy eating is the last dimension I want to talk about. And this is one where people also often forget how central it is to mental health. I remember one time I was speaking with a student who was really struggling with depression. And we talked about his sleep, and sure enough, that was part of the problem. He was getting five, six hours of sleep. Okay, that's not going to be good. And then I said, okay, what about your eating? And he said, oh, I think that part is fine. And I said, for example, today, tell me what you had to eat today. Long pause. And finally he said, I guess I haven't eaten today. And it was four o'clock in the afternoon. I guarantee you, if I had five hours of sleep last night and six the night before and I haven't eaten until four o'clock today, I'm not going to be in good shape either. So it's just, for some people, they, I can't really relate to this, but I've heard of the phenomenon that some people forget to eat <laughs> and they just get busy or they don't feel like eating because they're not in a great place. Um, but again, that's part of that downward spiral, and sometimes you have to do mind over me. I know I need to eat. I have to put gas in the car if I'm going to expect it to go anywhere. So don't underestimate this. I'm not a dietitian, so I'm not going to belabor this point, um, but I would share some of the obvious. We all know junk 
food, of course, can spike some energy and then crash. Um, insufficient food or going too long in between, not helpful. Even basics like having water. Remember Elijah, you need to hydrate. Caffeine, again, just like it can affect sleep, it can affect mood a lot. Anxiety is the number one increasing mental health symptom both on college campuses and nationally. And uh, caffeine does not help with that for most people. And alcohol is a depressant. So again, if somebody's struggling, they should look at that. And by the way, you start mixing them, like University of Michigan had this study showing if you mix sleep deprivation, stress, and alcohol, that is the perfect recipe for depression. If I wanted to make you depressed, I would put a lot of those three in your life. And yet students do that voluntarily on a regular basis. So it's part of it's just being self-aware and recognizing. Of course, disordered eating of any kind, binging, purging, restricting, etc. Okay, so look at your little self-evaluation and take just one moment and think about yourselves. How are you doing in the areas of sleep, eating, exercise? Do we have any more, Sierra? Anymore, <laughs> Raise your hand if anybody else needs that. Yeah, a few people do. And I would invite you, there's nothing magic about this sheet, of course, but if you're helping somebody think through, they feel overwhelmed with stress, they're stressed, it's been, they're going through difficult circumstances, just, just walk it through with them. Or for yourself, and you're like, wait a minute, I need to find my balance again. I, I've been stretched for a while. I want to bounce back. Just check in on those. All right, moving on. Social support. Social support is probably the number one that has been shown over and over and over again in the research to make a huge difference in resilience, whether it's what I call the little bumps in the road or whether it's the huge losses in life. Relationships have been shown to be key. I love this, another one where the book's great, but the title's even better. The shelter of each other, isn't that great? We were created to live life in the shelter of each other. We were not meant to do it alone. We were meant to look in each other's eyes and have real conversation. We were meant to share burdens and joys together. And if we don't do that, life gets so much harder. You've heard the old cliches about, and the old quotes about uh, what is it, a friend uh, makes the joys twice as good and the burdens half as difficult, something like that. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Just being able to share it, just being able to distract sometimes with something fun, having a mirror in your life reminding you of what's true about yourself and your life and God. It's really important. I'll share just a few examples of where research has shown this. Friedman talks about there's a lot of ways to consider what resilience means, but there's no question that social relationships are important for health. If you stack them against any other risk factors, having few social relationships, is comparable to smoking and obesity. It's a strong risk factor, even for death. So think about that in less uh, extremes even. 
the APA um, said in its resilience report, many studies show that the primary factor in resilience is having caring and supportive relationships within and outside the family. And the grant study at Harvard, I don't know if you know about that, it's been going on for years. They've been following people who are now about 90 since they were in college. Some of them are still living. And they've followed them for a lot of different uh, factors. But somebody recently asked the principal investigator, what's the main finding? You know, if you were to distill what you've found, this is what he said, that the only thing that really matters in your life are relationships with people. And how's that going today? What are your observations about relationships today? If it's such a central factor. Very digital, yeah. And what are the implications of that? Maybe disconnection, not as often in person. You can't see their eyes. Can't see their eyes. You might feel isolated. That again, that alone together thing. You know, they, even if they're together, they may be on their phones, <coughs> or they think they have relationships and they don't have somebody who really. I'll get to some questions in a minute. Would really be a true friend. Now, there are many ways that uh, social media and other online formats can facilitate relationships, like keeping in touch with somebody when you're apart or making arrangements to meet or you know, having a funny exchange during the day. But don't confuse that as a substitute for face-to-face relationships. So here's some questions to ask or to help somebody that you're helping ask. Do you have social support? Ask questions like this. Do you have people in your life who you trust, who you share what's really going on? Like, would they know what your fears are right now, what your stresses are, what your dreams are? Socially, do you have something to do? Do you have people to do, do things with, to have a good time, to relax? Spiritually, do you have people who pray for you? You know, people you pray with or have deep conversations with about things that really matter to you in the big picture. And then this one is sometimes where the rubber meets the road. Do you have somebody you could call? You needed a ride to the doctor, for example. You were having some procedure done and you needed a ride home. Do you have people you could call for that? Or they could help you with some other practical concerns? Those are some things to think about. In today's society, there's a lot of obstacles. Time, we're all very busy, most of us. There's distance, there can be competing priorities. But some of it's our own stuff, right? We don't want to be vulnerable. I invite you to look at Renee Brown's research about that. The vulnerability actually enhances relationships dramatically. There's some great YouTubes that she does along those lines. We have irrational thinking, we hold grudges. We don't want to take the risk of a friendship. And maybe, just maybe, some of us are a bit narcissists. We, we think about ourselves, and we talk about ourselves, and we pay attention to ourselves. And that might make a great way to start getting to know somebody, because you're maybe the life of the party, or you're good at getting things going. But then after a while, people don't respond as well. They want you to do some turn-taking and get to know them. And then other people have social anxiety that just makes it difficult 
And that all those things can be looked at, can be treated, can be changed, can you can grow from that. But it's important to look at what's going on. So a few strategies in this front. Be intentional is the first one. And this, again, it's counterintuitive. I think like with romantic relationships, sometimes people think, if I'm meant to have a friend, I should just have it. It should just happen. But it is OK to say, you know what? I don't have the time for my life. I've gotten so busy. I've just moved here. It's not been easy for me. And then I, if that's true, I'd invite you to think about, how, how would I do that? How would I get some friends? It's OK. It's not, that doesn't mean anything else wrong with you. Here's the reality. More and more people in the United States are lonelier and lonelier. So there's a lot of people out there who would like a friend. And so it's not like you're the one who doesn't have any friends. Everybody else is cool and connected. Like that's it, irrational thinking again. So if you can just say, okay, I need some friends. What am I going to do? So it's things like getting on the schedule regularly. If you have coffee with somebody every so often and it's a delightful exception to an overall lonely life, then say, hey, can we do this regularly? Start something, like a book club, a small group, an exercise group, so do some things. Um, be intentional, be authentic, I already mentioned that, and prioritize the time. Just like with sleep, people will say, oh, I don't have time for friendships, I'm really busy, this is a season of my life. Well, be warned, there will be a next season and a next season and a next season. So you have to decide if the relationships really matter. Oh, just till I graduate. Just till I get my first job. Just till, right, don't do that. <laughs> Rekindle old friendships, start groups, and sometimes double dip. I mentioned the exercise thing. That's great. If you have a pretty busy schedule, regularly exercise with a friend. Go walking or hiking with a friend. That way you have a predictable time to get together with a friend, to talk, and to get exercise. And of course, there's a time. There's a time to where you need more than just um, typical friendships. You also need the support of pastors or ministers. You want to maybe join a support group or get some professional help through uh, insurance, maybe at work you might have some kind of um, EAP program or community mental health often offers a slight increase there. All right, so look at your sheet and think about friendships for a minute. How's it going for you? Do you feel like you have good friendships? Do people really know you? Did you ask people for something? And if not, think about what's one step you could do. And again, imagine having this conversation with someone else. And then we'll move on to resilient thinking. Right? Scripture reminds us that we're often changed by the renewing of our mind. We often wish our circumstances would change, and we don't always have control over that. But instead, if our thinking would change, that changes us in all different ways. Okay, take a minute. <laughs> so this is a graphic I often show, because if we get in the zone of expecting life to be easy, we think we get on the path, we ride our bike and we get to the finish line. Then when real life happens, we're pretty distressed. But life really is like the second one, isn't it? Life is hard. There
there are obstacles, there are valleys, there are storms. You could name them in your own life. So how is expecting it to be hard actually good for resilience? I'm not surprised by it. You're not so surprised by it. Good. What else? when it's hard, so I better be ready for it to be hard. If I thought it was going to be there, I may not train for it, right? But if I know I'm going to have some mountains to climb and some valleys to get out of and some storms to endure, I better be doing things like taking care of my body, making sure I have friendships, because friends can help you pull up those, <laughs> up those mountains sometimes when you need it, and sleep and exercise matters. Right? So life is hard. M. Scott Peck once said, basically, in Road Less Traveled, Life is hard. Once you accept that, it's not so hard. <laughs> and it is so counterintuitive, but there's so much wisdom in that. This is life. This is life. This world is not our home, as the old hymn says, or in this world you will have trouble. Not you might, or you will. You will. <laughs> be of good cheer, right? So how can you be of good cheer? Part of it just accepting that is how it is. And then uh, the next cognitive thing that I think is really important to go right next to it, though, is you can do hard things. So because it's hard doesn't mean you have to go into absolute crisis mode. When it's hard, then OK. If you can say, and I can do hard things, you can do hard things. My daughter in college had um, a lot of quotes on her walls. She told me one time with encouraging or funny little quotes with her that she or her roommates had put up on her wall. And I was coming to visit, and she warned me that some of them were mommyisms. <laughs> oh no, what, what, what is she quoting me on? But this is one of the things she quoted me on. I can do hard things. You can do hard things. And I guess I start thinking about it. I always have said that to my kids. You can do hard things. So you can empathize that, yeah, this is hard. But it's not like, oh, no, this is an emergency. It's like, yeah, this is hard, and you can do hard things. And um, I was writing about that very experience one time recently. And then that very night, I was going to a concert by this folk singer. She was on campus. She's a Quaker um, woman who has some very thoughtful songs. And one of them, that was the chorus. You could do this hard thing. I was just writing the story of, of Hannah, and then that was her song. It was really interesting. She goes through that in her own life. Her mom, when she's faced with a homework problem, you can do this hard thing. You know, the numbers weren't adding up, whatever. But the chorus is, you can do this hard thing. It's hard, I know. And I see that it's so. You can do this hard thing. And then it's going away and separating, and then it's the death of a loved one. And always the chorus is, you can do this hard thing. So as we raise our children or influence children, one of the important things we want to give them is the message that they can do hard things. And in our own life, when we're having a hard time, the fact that it is so hard and even that we acknowledge it's hard doesn't mean that we can't do it. By the grace of God, by the support of the shelter of each other, we can do hard things. 
Part of how we do hard things is by adopting a growth mindset. This research by Carol Dweck has been well established now for a time. That it turns out if um, we think like that um, what we can and can't do is a permanent state, she calls that a fixed mindset, it's not going to be helpful. So if I say, I'm not good at math, or somebody says, I'm not good at sharing my feelings, or I'm not the kind of person who, whatever. That sounds so permanent, right? Versus having, that's a fixed mindset, like you're good at math and I'm not. Like you're good at relationships and I'm not, like that. Versus, hmm, this is a challenge for me. Now, do I think some things come more naturally and that we're gifted in different ways? Of course. But if I say, wow, this is going to be a challenge for me, that's different or I need to learn about communication better, or I've got to work on this, there's hope there. So that's called the growth mindset, it's really important. And then there's several other irrational thoughts that can interfere with our ability to be resilient. One is mind reading. Do any of you relate to this feeling? So I could tell he was really, really mad at me when I came into church that day. I could tell he was upset about what I'd said at the last meeting and then, you don't know. You don't know. You cannot read people's minds, number one. And number two, why do you care so much? Is an interesting question. But if you can let go, and that's easier said than done, right? But if you can get to the point that your okayness is not dependent on imaginary interpretations of people's facial expressions. You know, maybe they're upset with you, maybe they're upset with somebody else, maybe they have indigestion, like, you don't know, you don't know, even if they do have a funny look on their face. That's one. Another one is future fortune-telling. Scripture says, each day has, been, has enough trouble of its own, right? So why do we get ahead of ourselves, sure that what's happening next? I may not, uh, I think I bombed that midterm. Oh no, if I bomb that midterm, I'll fail the class. If I fail the class, I won't be able to major in this subject. If I don't major in this, my parents aren't going to pay for college. If they don't pay for college, then I'll probably never get a job. I'll probably, if I never get a job, I'll be, you know, whoa. Can we get the test scores back for sir? So bring it back. I use the phrase, wait to worry. Wait to worry. Can we take it one step at a time and see what Anxious people or non-resilient people have lived through many traumas they've never lived through. Right? <laughs> you get way ahead, you imagine. What if I miss that flight? And then there's not another flight that night. And then I will miss the meet. And then, let's see. Let's do our best to make that flight. Let's see what happens. And then we'll do it. Catastrophizing versus perspective taking. If this happens, my life will be fine. It'll be that sad. It'll be the end of the relationship. That kind of thinking versus it will be disappointing. It will be a bummer. That will lead to a challenge. <laughs> we'll have something to deal with. I'm not saying you have to pretend like it's great, but really in the greater scheme of things, is everything a catastrophe? Resilient people keep it in perspective. Think about it on a time frame. This is one exam. In one semester, I'm an undergraduate education, 
in the whole of somebody's education, in the whole of their life, in the whole of eternity, is it really catastrophe? I don't do that. Sometimes we relate emotionally, like it's, it's, we think emotionally, we think that if we have the feeling, it's true. For example, somebody with an eating disorder might say, I, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, even though they're not at all. I'm so fat. One of the injunctions we have to do is put, I'm having the feeling that. I'm having a feeling that I'm fat. Okay, it's a feeling, it distances a little bit. I'm such a loser, my life's going nowhere. I'm having the feeling that. Is it true? Is it what God says of you? Is it what's really true? Your friends would say that. Is that really right? Or are you having a bad day? You're having the feeling that you're a loser. It's a feeling that's coming and going. Coming and going. Right? Um, some of you in church circles, especially youth ministry, may have the um, experience of using, have you heard that term before about Usually it's used with lust that I've heard. Like, you can't, you, what's the wisdom? You can't control the birds that fly over your head, but you can prevent them from nesting in your hair. Right? <laughs> so you're going to have these lustful thoughts or whatever. You can't control that, but don't dwell on them, don't feed them, don't whatever. It's true with any unhealthy thought, right? If you're having catastrophizing thoughts, or if you're having thoughts about mind reading, if you're having thoughts about worrying about the future, Shoot on those birds again. Do not feed them. Make a decision that I'm not going to dwell here. Okay? And then finally, perfectionism versus high standards. It's great to have high standards. It's great to believe that you've been given certain gifts and talents, and God would want you to develop them fully to use them in service. That's great. It's great to want to be a homemaker, to have a nice and comfortable home, um, to have your family have a place where you can uh, encourage others to come and have a restful experience. Those things are great. But that's different than I have to be top, top, top of the class at every single event, and my house cannot have one speck of dust, or my career cannot have one misstep, or I always have to be the top. That's perfectionism. It's not healthy. It can be idolatry. Anytime something like that is used to prove that we're okay versus I'm okay because of who I am, a child of God, and he loves me, and then that God, I'm honoring him by the gifts and talents I'm going to develop. That's a very different mindset. So I'm just checking ourselves when we get in that. All right, do a self-assessment on your thinking. And then last but not least, I'm going to talk about other spiritual practices. And the reason I say other is because I think this is all spiritual. I think being a good steward of your body is a spiritual practice. I think guarding your mind is a spiritual practice. I think loving your neighbor and um, being in a relationship <coughs> is what you were created for. But now I want to talk about some explicit um, spiritual things. 
Research is really clear that faith can make a huge difference, of course. That doesn't surprise us, right? There's been a lot of even social science studies to say that it matters a lot, that it can make a difference in dealing with grief, dealing with um, disabled children, dealing with just all kinds of major stresses. But does it always is the question. We would know it would, of course, from scripture, we believe that, that it's going to help us be, for example, well with our soul, as the classic um, hymn says, even when sorrows and sea billows roll. But even social science would say, yeah, it probably does help with perspective taking. It probably gives you a place to serve. It um, provides social support, those kinds of things. Um, and it does in many, many cases. What I've seen, though, for some people, their faith definitely does. But other times, not so much. They distort their faith, or they, they distort their beliefs in a way that actually is not helpful and or even counterproductive to their well-being. So for example, sometimes people have faith is just one more area in which they have to excel. And they're doing the perfectionism thing related to faith. So they're not just being still and knowing that he's God and trying to be centered in that and serve in that and comfort in that. Instead, they're proving, proving, proving their faith all the time. Joining every single thing, volunteering every time. It's, a, it's a, almost building a spiritual resume. That's not helpful. Right? Sometimes it's time to do less and think about what God would have you serve. I remember one time a student, like a sophomore, panicking. I haven't created a nonprofit yet. There's time. It's panic. Not helpful. Distorting it against um, yourself. Sometimes my dear RAs will have the sweetest ministry perspective, which I'm humbled by. And yet sometimes they need to be careful that they're also taking care of themselves. Maybe they're overwhelmed and sleep deprived and having trouble coping. What's going on? Well, I was up all night. One of my residents had an appointment. Okay, but when you think this, what about the night before? Oh, I was having to mediate something in one of my suits. Okay, but how about your How about your self care? Well, it's a ministry, you know, and I have to put others first. I admire that, and I think over time you get the wisdom of even Jesus removed himself at times and putting your oxygen mask on first. All that kind of thing. But probably the most common is, unfortunately, a lot of times people just don't connect faith with their life. Like, here's my faith, here's my, uh, what I believe, here's what I'm involved in, and then, oh, here's my struggle, here's my um, heartache, here's my disappointment, and they don't think sometimes how the two might fit together. So think about that for yourself. How are you doing that? Are you walking with a deep sense of God with you, because that can be hugely important. If not, how might you cultivate that? Are you distorting faith against yourself or not making the connections? A few just very practical ways to apply this. Because sometimes people think, okay, yeah, that's great in principle, but what does that mean? Here's a very simple prayer. You see it on bumper stickers and all over. It's AA uses it a lot. It's so common that it could be viewed as cliche, but 
but why has it stayed out there? Because there's a lot of wisdom. It's right on my wall, right by my desk. I used to share it when I was doing the counseling alone with clients. I would hope they would see it, but I put it where I would see it too, right? The serenity prayer. Having the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There's a lot of wisdom in that. You can pray that. You can get out a worksheet and separate it. So what's within my control that I can do something about and what I want to do? What's not? And how am I going to grieve it and let it go? That's hard, but it's important. Gratitude is um, an area that's been recently really verified in social science research, especially positive psychology, has shown that even simple practices, like keeping a journal, a gratitude journal, um, if people need that sort of nudging, and there's always something to say. You know, write down five things at the end of a day. Sometimes it's easy. My friend met me for lunch, I haven't seen her in so long, it's great. Oh, this project went well. The kids are behaving like angels, whatever. <laughs> Sometimes there are days like that, right? And then other days, it's like, I'm grateful this day is over. <laughs> I'm grateful I have a pillow to lay my head on. Not everybody does. I'm grateful that I have people in my life that care. Sometimes it's like that. But just doing that, social science research has shown, can make a huge difference on, in your well-being. It can help you to physically to sleep better and notice fewer symptoms. It can help you psychologically have more energy, better mood, and it's been shown even to have better relationships, which I find fascinating. But then I was thinking about that, and who wants a curmudgeon friend? I mean, we need to help ourselves be sweet to curmudgeon friends, but it is easier to have relationships with people who are grateful, who appreciate you, for example, who appreciate your friendship, who see life positively. So I do, I'm not surprised that it helps relationships. So, uh, positive psychology has discovered it recently. God knew about it a long time ago. If you look through the Psalms, there's so many references to enter his courts for Thanksgiving, things like that. There are reminders and be thankful, even embedded in other scriptures. There are examples of people who remember to be grateful, one leper out of ten, and nine who don't, and reminds us that it's a choice and that we can forget about it. But cultivating gratitude is a huge thing for resilience and mental health. Mindfulness, um, I'm going to talk about this kind of at two levels. One is what I call big picture mindfulness. And that, think about the opposite, would be what? A mindfulness would be mindlessness, right? So mindfulness is paying attention. Paying attention. Being present. Being aware. So think about it as... For example, if you're going through a hard time, think about that there are all these blessings also next to you and around you that you might miss that could help you get through the hard time. But if you're not mindful, you're just like going through the motions, you're just stressfully going through your day, and you're missing that sweet friend who called you and that great cup of tea that was just what you needed and that sunset that the Creator left you today and those flowers along the way. Those don't erase the hard time, but you miss them if you're not present. And your relationships are greatly impacted if you're never present. People know that feeling if you're kind of halfway out the door all the time. So that's big picture mindfulness. By the way, being in nature can be huge with that. 
creative pursuits can make a big difference, and novelty, new experiences, the fact that we're creating that kind of mindfulness. There's also the kind of mindfulness that's mindful meditation. You might think of that more readily when I mention the word mindfulness, where you're actually taking a couple of minutes, maybe up to 20, some people get much longer, to focus, for example, on their body and breath. And there's all kinds of research about that. But it settles your blood pressure, your anxiety. There's been some great um, writing recently by um, Felina Hertz. She talks about the importance of solitude, helping you be ready for a relationship, that quiet helps you know what to say, those kinds of things. Just having time and sweet. Mindful moments are important. There are a lot of resources. I'm happy to point you to others. UCLA MARC, it stands for Mindfulness Awareness Research Center. There are online meditations that, that range from three minutes to 19 that help you learn how to do this at first. That book, Mindfulness in a Frantic, Finding Peace in a Frantic World, if you go to their website, there are others. But I encourage you to think about it. If you're a busy, frantic, stressed person, now, some people get worried about that when I talk about it. They think, oh, am I teaching a, a different religion or something like that? I don't think so. I get it that it has some origins and some of the practices do. And as a Christian person, I can notice my breathing and say, thank you, God, for the breath of life. Thank you that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and that you created this body that can settle itself by a few moments of just paying attention. But there are some that are explicitly Christian and use Christian um, language in their meditations. And we're reminded sometimes that it's not that different than some ancient Christian practices like centering prayer or lectogenia, which as you may know, is to pay attention to a passage, not for <laughs> biblical study, not to show how smart you are, to overanalyze it, but just for personal reflection and personal growth, be believing that the word is living and active and has something for me today. So for example, I would read a passage like this. Let's read it together twice. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here's one more time. So do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, if you were doing this by yourself, you might do that maybe three more times, five times or so. Just read it repeatedly. Then notice which part strikes you. Which part struck you, Selena? Give me an example. Which phrase struck you? I will strengthen you. Okay, so I will strengthen you. So then you say that one a few times. I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you. You can kind of reflect on it differently. Mm -hmm. And then notice, like, why was that important to you today? Are you feeling a little bit of struggle? Are you feeling like you need some strength? Are you feeling the need to know? And then that leads you into prayer. And prayer, of course reminds us profoundly many things, including that we're never alone. 
So that's the spiritual dimension, and I'd encourage you to reflect on that one too. And I hope that there was something from today that might be, as I said at the beginning, a basic that you needed to be reminded of, or a new idea that you might try, and things that you can certainly minister others with, but also with yourself too. So thank you for your time.